Isaiah chapter 37 this evening, Battlefield of Fear, is the title. That's where faith fights its wars, on the battlefield of fear. Because of the voice of Satan in the previous chapter, in chapter 36, life had, for these Jews in Jerusalem, become just that, a place to fight fear. And what we learn from this 37th chapter in response to chapter 36 is that it took their doctrine, their right understanding of what God had told men about himself and about them. It took trust, trusting God, faith, prayer, that's a big part of the 37th chapter. And it also took a resolve that had to be there with or without fear. Whether you felt still terrified or not, you had to have this resolve that you were going to trust God if you were going to line up with the righteous. Of course, in this city, there's a remnant of the righteous. Many of them are still corrupt. They'll benefit from what the remnant achieved in going to God. And uh, whatever is taking place on the inside of our faith, hopefully, uh, lining up with God, it will show up on the outside. This generation of Jewish believers show us how to trust under siege. They show all the generations of the Jews what they should be doing. And you, you look at the Jews today, the Jewish people, and most of them you just say, Don't, do they even read their own scripture? Many of them so remarkably ignorant. They're still listening to the rabbis with bypassing their own Bibles. And so here we have this model uh, in chapter 37, of how to respond to a crisis as a believer. The uh, fake believers, they, they, they're not, their story is not told. It's skipped over. God is telling the story of, essentially, two men. There are others, too. But the main two, of course, are King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah. This duo uh, is just um, uh, very helpful for us. Now, Hezekiah... His officers, of course, they go out and they, they speak to Rabshakeh, the Assyrian commander, as he threatens them and mocks them. And when they come back and tell Hezekiah what happened, Hezekiah will go to God. He will go to the temple. And there he will recall, it appears, the promise of God. Not word for word, but in, in practice. And this verse from 2 Chronicles 7.14. It doesn't really apply to Christians. It is for the Jewish people. I'll read it to you. I know many of you him and haw. Of course, there's elements in, of it that do. But overall, it's for the Jewish people. It's for people of faith, but it's tailored. Listen to it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive them their sin and heal their land. Well, we, we have Christ. We're not in that same situation. It's not identical. I don't want to get too caught up in that. And if you insist, no, that's for us, okay, well, fine. But uh, actually, it, it is for uh, the Jews who have drifted to come back to God and at the temple call upon him. Well, Hezekiah did not drift at, at this point in, in history. He is totally there with God. And he goes to the temple, and he's going to call on the Lord following the template that 
Solomon gave us in 2 Chronicles 7. So we look at verse 1. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. It appears he did not hesitate. He gets this terrible news from the Rabshakeh, his Hezekiah's three envoys go out, and Rabshakeh tells them all these things. They come back and tell him. And the sackcloth, of course, is just that outward expression of deep distress in the midst of a crisis. Now, interesting that there's no mention of Isaiah putting on sackcloth. As Isaiah gets the word, he's like, he's eating a sandwich. Uh-huh, what happened? And he's just like, he's not phased. He says, hear what God has to say. And you just attracted to that. Uh, Isaiah loved the nation just as much as King Hezekiah. They both faced the same ominous threat, but there's a slight difference in how they, they, they go about it. And I'm not, that's not condemning Hezekiah at all. It says, and he went into the house of Yahweh. Well, there's nowhere else to go, and he didn't want to go anywhere else. You know, if you turn to Christ because you can't find anywhere else to go, but you would go somewhere else if you could, well, that's not ideal. And so, penitently, he goes immediately to God's house, and he sends messengers, the ones that came to him and told him, he sends them to Isaiah. Psalm 63, 2. So I looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life, and my lips shall praise you. We have a song like that. Uh, it's just based on those very words, almost verbatim. Uh, you, you know, your loving kindness is better than life. And um, anyway, this, this psalm, just, he goes to the sanctuary in the psalm. I have looked for you in the sanctuary. It's not the only psalm. Psalm 73, same thing. I understood when I went to the sanctuary of the Lord. And here, Hezekiah, beelines there. Seeking divine help, however, is, of course, not enough. You have to seek divine help from the true God. Fake gods disqualify sincerity and faith, and it's one of the lessons from the prophets of, on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal. They were very sincere. They trusted their fake God, but it did not benefit them. Well, now, verse 2, then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz. Well, we covered who these men were in verse thirty, uh, in chapter 36, verses 2 and 3. James writes this, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over you, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Uh, I like that verse because it takes away from the pastors the requirement to read minds. Uh, I like to tell, well, you know, if you, if you need something, tell us. Don't leave it to us to try to figure it out. Why should we be put in that spot? Just tell us, especially as other people, too. They have needs, too. We supposed to track them. So just tell us. And I like, as anyone music, go to the elders and tell them. Don't think they're going to you know, figure it out. Anyway, I think I may have misspoke about this order of events last session. I did not go back and listen. And uh, I, I may have said last week, or maybe it was a stunt double that said it. Uh, you know, you work so hard to make no mistakes. You go back, you check, you recheck, and then you st- every every single pastor makes makes a mistake at some point. And so you bring your Bibles, and and, you know, and not a not a doctrinal point, thank God. Usually we don't make those. Uh, but uh, I th- think I said they went 
to Isaiah first and then the king. Well, if I did say that, I was testing you. Uh, if I did say that, it's the other way. They did go to the king, and then they came to Isaiah. Now that I got that out of the way, how much agony do you think I went through when I realized, hey, you know what, I think I got that one wrong? A lot. <laughs> Start looking in the one. I'm getting another job. I can't take this anymore. <laughs> anyway, verse 3, and they said to him, thus says Hezekiah. Actually, this is even better how, how it works out than my scenario, uh, if I indeed did do it. Uh, and they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble, verse 3, and rebuke and blasphemy for the children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. Now, the, taking it from the bottom of the verse up, the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. I think what they're saying here is that the reforms that Hezekiah and Isaiah and the righteous remnant in, in Jerusalem uh, had instituted, um, they, they really were big, trying to get the culture back to Yahweh. And he's saying, you know, we've done all this work, but now the Assyrians are here and they're going to wipe us out. And it's like for nothing. And so it's, it's kind of, it's nice how he words this, that the kingdom was being undermined uh, uh, at the time uh, by the idolaters who were Jewish in, in Jerusalem. They were greedy. They were many of them corrupt. This is emphasized by Isaiah in his first five chapters. He lays out all the things that they were doing. And Isaiah chapter 1, for example, verses 16 and 17, <coughs> the prophet says, <clears throat> Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. They weren't doing that. And he says more scathing things in that first chapter. He you know, calls them you know, an spiritually dumber than, an, than a donkey. Uh, and so he, he lays it out, and we, we come away, we say, okay, we understand what, what the prophet and the king and the remnant were fa <laughs> facing there in Jerusalem. And the corruption and the idolatry that the majority seems to have been guilty of, of course, were breaking down the morals, causing suffering in life, and uh, it was the spiritual meaning of the, their covenant was, was destroyed. So in response to the first four chapters, the first five chapters, it's kind of laid out this way where God says, this is what's wrong, Isaiah is telling us. And then we have that sixth chapter, God's response. And what was the response? To send this dynamo prophet, Isaiah, in the year King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up in, in, in the temple and trained the robe of his robe uh, filled the sanctuary. So there you have God's response. Then at the same time, if you just follow this biblical pattern, the corruption of the Jews, God's response in sending the prophet, you get the, the latter chapters like chapter 10, and then you see God saying, now I'm going to punish the people, and I'm going to use the Assyrians to do it. Well, that's going to cause Hezekiah a lot of questions, because he knows that's taking place, and he doesn't know if when God is ready to turn the Assyrians off. He's hoping they're going to do it when he goes, goes to pray. Because 30 years of the Assyrian menace, uh, it, brought, it was brought on by that troublemaker called rebellion. Rebellion against God. 
And so Israel's future hinges on this this moment. Verse 4, it may be that Yahweh your God will hear the words of Reb Shekah, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words, <coughs> pardon me, and will rebuke the words which Yahweh your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer and uh, your prayer for the remnant that is left. It may be that Yahweh your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which Yahweh your God has heard. Well, prior to this invasion, Hezekiah had become deathly ill and was healed. And at the same time, God assured him that the land, the Jerusalem and the man himself would be delivered. But he doesn't get presumptuous with that. He doesn't just say, uh, you know, well, therefore God's obligated. He spoke to the prophet. He's very cautious how he handles this. His doubts are fair because they're based on Judah's guilt. Well, maybe he will survive. Uh, maybe, you know, if he just takes the, Isaiah's word, okay, I will survive. The city won't be conquered. But how much more bloodshed will we suffer? Because Judah had been wiped out almost. All the fortified cities were conquered. Over 200,000 of them were taken captive. Countless others slaughtered. And so he doesn't approach this presumptuously. How far will the punishment go? And uh, he did not cling to false presumption. Well, God's going to do this, and God's going to do that. He didn't know what God was going to do. When you hear someone given prophecy like that, just ask them the question, what's the penalty in the Scripture for being a false prophet? It's capital crime. How many false prophecies does it take to be a false prophet? One. So be careful before you go around telling everybody what you think God is going to do. I think it sobers all of us up. We all may at one time or another just be so sure, well, God's going to do something. Well, he's already doing something. But, you know, when, when Christians go to the stake, there were those saying God's going to save them. And they did not. Not that God was wrong. God took them to heaven. So there's a little bit of a wake-up call for all of us in approaching God in a, in a uh, presumptuously and uh, we learn that from Hezekiah, that he's not being presumptuous. He does say that he's hoping God will act on their blasphemy and give them a pass no longer. So he says here in verse 4, Therefore lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. <clears throat> this is what they're telling Isaiah. A rally to intercessory prayer. Intercession means I've got to get involved. I can't sit on the sidelines. You know who illustrates that wonderfully for us? Don't answer the question because you'll never get it right. Well, at least not who I'm going to think. You might get it right, but it won't be. The... Anyway, Zipporah. Zipporah, Moses' wife. God, God was looking to kill Moses for violating the law and daring to stand as leader of the people. Point made. That's the whole, one of the great purposes of just that moment. That's the point. God's not fooling around with you as the leader. Well, she is the one that circumcised the child. She gets involved. She's not apathetic. She's not inactive. She's zealous. And she's angry, too. And she's angry at Moses. 
And, you know, she, she throws the foreskin at the feet and says, you know, you're, you're a bloody man. You do did this. It's, it's so candid how the Bible takes this family moment that's ministry in the home and publishes it for all, all time, all history, for us to come and learn. So my point, Zephora, she got involved. Intercessory prayer, praying on behalf of others, draws you in. You get involved. And uh, it's, it's fueled by the, the Spirit of God, but that Spirit of God can be frustrated if we don't act. If she just sat there or left the tent, the story would have been different. We probably, God would have had to get another lawmaker, maybe like Leon. <laughs> Instead of, you wouldn't know Moses. Be, thus says Leon. <laughs> All right. All right, coming back to this. So Hezekiah, spiritual. I don't know if you get if you get how powerful that is. You know, God could just get another Moses, and I just inserted the name. Um, Hezekiah, again, spiritually wise enough not to dismiss the threat and not to succumb to it at the same time. That's poise. So I see the threat. He's not caving to the threat, and he's not going crazy. He's going to God's house, and he's keeping his wits about him. He did not have this blind faith. The sackcloth is saying, this is, this is major league. This is a heavyweight situation. And his call for Isaiah to pray showed his confidence in prayer, that prayer counts because the devil works so hard to tell us that it does not. And so the comment Luke adds, that Jesus, talking about prayer to the apostles, men ought always pray and not lose heart. Well, he only said that because that's what we do. We lose heart. But if you love somebody enough, you won't lose heart. You just will stay at it. And love covers a multitude of sins. Love is invincible in that, in that sense. And hell knows it. And the Christian who is aspiring to be Christ-like will learn these lessons. And so even though the Lord had brought Assyria to chasten Judah, uh, the king hoped that the judgment was now over, using them as an instrument. The sovereignty of God, Job 38.11, God's speaking to Job, when I said, speaking to the, the, the oceans, this far you may come, but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. That's the sovereignty of God. He, he knows when to turn it off. He knows when to leave it on. And, and the Christian learns that. And we don't rebel against him because of that. Verse 5, So the servants of the king came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says Yahweh, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. So, Isaiah, he's older now. He's, he's an old prophet. He's established as a prophet. And he knows what his role is. And he is carrying it out. And he says, I'm going to give you what God says. I want you to take these words back to the king. You've come to ask me to pray? Well, while he's there praying, God's telling Isaiah what to say. And the first thing is, do not be afraid. One of the most cherished words... That God speaks to us. It's so prevalent in the New Testament, right? Fear not. Uh, original sin has made earth 
the battlefield, a battlefield where faith fights fear. Uh, and, you know, there's original sin, we're all sinners, and there's a sinful acts that we commit based on that original sin. So when someone is sick, a beloved Christian is sick with a terminal sickness, that's sin, not their sin, but sin on earth. And the curse upon uh, mankind that we have to go through. And God says, of course, I'm going to make this worth it. Just abide in me. You keep your faith going. And, and uh, uh, you know... As believers leave this life, will one of the first things we, we hear or have imparted to us is fear not? Because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people get up to that gate of death and there's fear. Believers. Uh, some others uh, just, you know, dive right in. But it's, it's real. Uh, and uh, so that's why God tells us, fear not. He, he means it. It doesn't mean the outcome is going to be the way you want. It means he'll be with you. And he says here in verse 6, of the words which you have heard, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard. That was the voice of the devil from chapter 36. A real devil with a real army and real swords that cut and kill. God hears all the praises, the genuine praises of believers, and he hears all the blasphemes. And he serves notice to those who aren't believers that it will be used against you. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. But I say to you that every idle word of word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. That's pretty serious coming from God Almighty. Uh, how would an unbeliever know that? <clears throat> Unless we tell them. That's what Paul's argument is in Romans 10. How should they hear without a preacher? And how should they preach unless they are sent? And uh, that can be on an individual evangel evangelical level or uh, from, from a pulpit. Anyway, uh, he continues here in verse 6 at the bottom. With which the servants of king, the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Now, said Isaiah, you know, all those prophets, they, they knew how to stick it to the devil's people. And here's an example. The, the word servants is not the common word for servants. It's used elsewhere, but in context, it's like, you know, an errand boy or a lad. But to use it here in this context and uh, the structure of the Hebrew, it's, a, it's, a con, it's, um, it's derogatory. It's contemptuous. They're saying, you know, those little flunkies of Sennacherib. His, his Assyrian flunky. So he says, which the flunkies of King Assyria have blasphemed me. That, that is a closer reading to what Isaiah is actually saying. And so the, there's the, the servants of Hezekiah listening to Isaiah's word, and they're going, yes. And he says, I love when the prophet speaks. Uh, so verse, 30, verse 7 now. Surely I will send the Spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. That, you know, prophecy blends a lot of things into simple sentences that can span decades, if not centuries, and it kind of leaves it to, for us and to, to figure it out. In this case, where he says, I will send a spirit upon him, and he will hear a rumor and return to his own land... Well, yeah, he's going to do that, but then he comes back, and then he says, and Isaiah leaves all that out, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Well, that's 20 years from now before that takes place. 
And yet they treated it like this is what God said. And, and they went by faith on these things. And here we have, a, you know, this giant New Testament. And we struggle to believe. Uh, but at least we're struggling. So uh, he makes no reference here to the devastation that's coming to the Assyrian army, the 185,000 slaughtered in one night, because he already did. He already mentioned it. Isaiah 31, uh, verse 8. Then Assyria shall fall by a sword, not a man, not of man, and a sword, not of mankind, shall devour him, but he shall flee from the sword. The idea being that uh, Sennacherib, the, the king, when his armies return and they're wiped out that night, they're terrified and they flee. They don't just mosey back to Assyria. Uh, the, the, Isaiah is saying they're, they're going to be shaken up by that and they'll never come back into Judah again. So uh, God knows how to lead uh, enemies to their doom. He is going to hear a rumor. Right now, at this time in history, there's an Ethiopian king who will also be king over Egypt. He will merge the two together. And Isaiah writes that way for his audience because... It did, it's not at the time it's happening, it happens later. I don't know why I'm telling you that. That's for commentators to argue back and forth. And I've been arguing with them and winning. I've been winning. They haven't said anything back to me when I... Anyway, I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Again, 20 years later. Verse 8, then Rabshakeh uh, returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna. For he heard that he had departed from Lachish. So he's giving us detail that really is too much for us, about 20 miles from uh, Jerusalem. Reb Shekah, he brings his army to Jerusalem, hears that there's trouble with his king, Sennacherib. He takes his army there, but they're going to send a letter. And they're going to say, don't think you've gotten away with this. We will be back. There's a terror of Satan on the faith of believers. And uh, Hezekiah, he had taken the time to fortify Jerusalem. To, to We believe he, he is the one that cut that water well in, in Jerusalem. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's a conduit for water uh, because he knew the sieges would come and he was going to be ready for them as best he could. Verse 9, then the king heard concerning Terheka, king of Ethiopia. He has <clears throat> come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, okay, so Terheka, this Ethiopian who becomes king of Egypt too, and the Ethiopians had a huge army, um, he's rattling, he's mobilizing. The Assyrians find out about this, and, well, we're not going to fight Jerusalem and this guy at the same time. We'll, we'll just pull our troops to face this other threat. We'll come back and get Jerusalem later. They're not going to do anything, but we can't have this... Terheka's army coming from the south. And so <clears throat> they're going to respond to that. And uh, so then, then so verse 9, the bottom, it says, So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying. So now this is the Assyrians sending this letter to Hezekiah. Verse 10, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of of the king of Assyria. Again, you could insert, you know, the, 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 the Jewish believers in Daniel saying, oh, king, we're not even careful how we're going to answer you in this. We're going to trust God no matter what he does or does not do. 
So he, here, this is Sennacherib, the boss of Rebshekah, the king of the Assyrians, who's going to be killed by his own sons in 20 years in his temple. Anyway, he's echoing what Rebshekah said, because he's the author of what Rebshekah was saying. And he's, he's trying to put the pressure on Judah, Judah's king Hezekiah, to not trust God, to not trust Yahweh. Been through this in chapter 36. Uh, Hezekiah is, um, he's, he's not pressured. He's, he's just going to trust the Lord. He's going to do everything right. So here's what, what he is told, says in his, writes in his letter to the Jewish king. Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of, uh, Isaiah responding, saying, Jerusalem shall not, don't trust the prophecies that Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He's saying, don't trust your God. You will be given into my hand. I'm going to conquer you. That's the voice of the devil. I hope I'm not confusing you with that. Um, Verse 11. Look, still the evil king talking. You have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? See, he's just, he's just trying to inject terror and fear into them, break their faith down, attacking their, their faith and their God. This is what Satan does. Uh, verse 12, Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? And this is not the Garden of Eden. It's an, another Eden. Uh, verse 13, Where is the king of Hamath? The king of Arphad, the king of the city of Sarahavim, uh, Hannah, Iva. Um, Iva asked you the question, where are these places? So it's pretty spooky. It's pretty spooky even with faith. Because <clears throat> faith does not ignore reality. It, it looks for God in reality. Miracles, God's miracles, they overrule statistics. They, God can deal with all of this, and Hezekiah knows it. And the New Testament spends a lot of time telling us Christians in its own way, I need you to be strong. I need you to be anxious for nothing, but in all things, with thanksgiving. Uh, you know, in prayer and supplication, you let your supplications be made known to God. Well, we'll come back to that verse again. But unbelief, our own unbelief, tries to void out the idea of God's faithfulness. The world tries to void out the idea of an absolute sovereign God to whom we are to be faithful to. That's what's going on here. He's trying to void out the king's faith. It's not working. Verse 14. And Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of Yahweh and spread it out before the Lord. Verse 15. Then Hezekiah prayed to Yahweh saying. So he gets the letter. He reads it. And he takes this to God. Uh, what would Saul, King Saul, have done? He wouldn't have done this. His own, Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, would not have done that. He pushed back on the prophet when Isaiah was saying, as for a sign, God wants to get involved in this. And he didn't want any part of it. But Hezekiah, he's got it right. He doesn't tear his clothes this time. And he's not in a hurry to answer the letter. But he is, he is focused on getting to God. Uh, so, you know, faith seeks to conform to God's will, no matter what it costs. 
Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Basic Christianity. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Um, it's, n- it's not being a tattletale to run and tell God everything. It's prayer. That's, com- that's walking with the Lord. He knows it anyway. But it sure helps to get it in front of him. Uh, as Habakkuk said, I will see how he will answer me and how I will respond. And that's where the growth takes place. Um, if maybe you don't like somebody, uh, tell God. Lord, you know I, I don't like this. Sometimes you're, you're not justified. And you know it. I, I have no reason. I just don't like the person. Well, that may not be a sin in of itself if it doesn't you know, show up in the way you treat them. But when those kind of things, you know, they're not little. They can, they can snowball into something very big. They can create a spirit of bitterness, a spirit of pettiness, of injustice. All sorts of things can happen. When give that to Satan. Uh, I try to tell God everything. Sometimes I get tired of telling him things. I get tired of talking to him. I'm just tired of talking. Not, not, not in the sense that I'm tired of talking to you. Not in that sense, but just fatigued on certain things. And so I just sit before him. And, and I don't sit there too long. I get restless. But, but I do sit a little bit. And I, all I can say is that over all, after all these years, I'm still standing um, I've, I've seen others turn away from the faith. They're not serving anymore. Uh, life has caught them in certain things, and, and they've just turned away. Um, and you just want to not be on that casualty list. Verse 16, O Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So he paused here. Remember, I mentioned in the beginning that his doctrine was a part of this. We have Acts 2.22 in motion, continuing steadfastly in the, the apostles' doctrine and, and prayer and communion and uh, fellowship. Well, that's what we have here. Isaiah, uh, Hezekiah, he's not isolated. He's plugged into the prophet. He has his servants. He goes to God. He says, God is the creator of heaven and earth. So he's a creationist. Verse 17. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, uh, O O Yahweh, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Well, coming from a man like him, there's no insult there. Open your ears, open your eyes. But, you know, we can use that in an insulting. Why don't you just open your eyes? You know, that's not what he's saying. So he's saying this with feeling, this feeling behind this. You know, he's crying out to God, maybe not with tears, but he's, he's a serious. Verse 18, truly Yahweh, the king of Assyria, has have laid waste to all the nations and their land. So he says, I admit what Sennacherib is telling us is true. He's wiped out these peoples who had these false gods. The king has no sense of entitlement, but he does have a spirit of dependence. And if you have a spirit of entitlement that somehow God owes you, you might want to get rid of that and instead just look to be uh, dependent on the Lord. So the, the king says, here's the problem, Sennacherib, right out with that, verse 19, he, that he continues with what he has done. He has cast out their gods in, into the fire, for they are not gods. But the work of men's hands, wood, stone, therefore they destroyed them. So again, his doctrine, he's sharing it 
right out. The living God versus the dead idols. Something martyrs never lose sight of. Uh, you know, God did not, the Lord did not have to say to Stephen, fear not. He just showed up. <laughs> that did it. Just seeing the Lord, uh, Stephen had no fear when he checked out. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> I want to just Acts chapter 4, verse 18, because here we have the living God versus these idols. And the name Jesus, in the context of Christ or Nazareth, it is a big deal. The name of Christ Jesus is not, there's nothing common about it. There's nothing average about it. In Acts chapter 4, so they called them, that's the apostles, and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. You see chaplains today, they're saying, you cannot be a chaplain in the name of Jesus. You can be it in front of Muhammad or Krishna or whoever else. We, just, we don't want to hear you invoking the name Jesus. Because, well, I'll just give you another one. Acts 21, verse 13. This is when they're telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. He'll be persecuted. He says, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue, well, <clears throat> every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. You see what, what, what I'm saying? When I pray, I love saying, in Jesus' name, because I love him. And it is personal. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because of Jesus Christ, and so do countless multitudes of Christians through the ages to this day have this relationship. It is a, making a distinction between the fake gods and the real Savior. And I think that when you pray, you know, with boldness, in the name of Jesus. I'm not saying it's, a, it's not a, you don't have to do this. I'm just telling you, I enjoy doing that. I, um, I open my prayers the three ways Christ did, you know, um, righteous Father, our Father who art in heaven, your heavenly Father, just because I want to. But that doesn't mean I think others should. However, I still know that the Bible teaches that nor is there salvation in any other name given among men by which we must be saved. And so, uh, yeah, it's not being proud of. It's just it's making that declaration. Isaiah, no less than eight times, he refers to the no gods. And here he says, for, Hezekiah says, for they are not gods. Yahweh is God. And Yahweh of the Old Testament is Jesus of the New Testament. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2 verse 8. Their land is also full of no gods. They worship the work of their own hands. That which their own fingers have made. Now the Hebrew is no gods but it was translated idols. Uh, and as I've said a few times before going through the Old Testament. Ezekiel he just he, he lays it on heavy. Well now. That's my, my emphasis on the name of Jesus. Um, it used to be a song. Uh, there's a few of them. The one that's coming to, to mind. Jesus, just the mention of your name. The flowers bloom, the, de no, the desert blooms again. I, I think it's a Jimmy Swaggart song, actually. Ooh. <laughs> he can sing and he can play that piano. And uh, anyway, uh, he used to in spite of his, his shortcomings. So, 
verse 20 now. Now therefore, O Yahweh our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are Yahweh, you alone. Nor is there salvation in any other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And he's, uh, Paul, when he says that, he's quoting Isaiah, incidentally. So, uh, here, the prophet in verse 20, he wants more than deliverance from Israel, for, 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 for Jerusalem. He wants more than deliverance for his life, for the people, for the city of Jerusalem. He wants God to be glorified. So, you see, this is a great man of faith, this king. Uh, it... Um, it is a central theme in Isaiah that God be glorified, that the Gentiles get this light. And uh, it, it's nice to see it. Verse 21, Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of, of Assyria. We'll pause there. As I mentioned, men ought always pray. It means humans, people. Ought always pray and not lose heart. And here we see God ringing in on that in the Old Testament. The king is praying to God. God is answering the king's prayer. He doesn't know it at the moment, but he's answering it to the prophet Isaiah. Uh, anyway, verse 22. This is the word which Yahweh has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn, and the daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. And so... Uh, the prophet is saying that in the end, we will mock the king of the Assyrians. This was supposed to create peace in the heart of the Jews. Philippians 4, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. When Paul wrote the Philippian letter that I've been quoting a few times this evening, talking about faith and courage... He wrote it after having been stoned and shipwrecked and beaten and arrested and chased. So he knew he was talking about. He wasn't just, you know, comfortable in a palace somewhere and he's writing out, be anxious for nothing. He's been living this stuff. And where we are in Acts on Sunday, we haven't, he's not yet written the Philippian letter. After all he's been through in Acts, later on, He's still going to be a champion of the faith. A lot of people become jaded or disappointed with God. You know, I look, I've been suffering all of this time, and God doesn't answer my prayers. And, you know, if he's such a God, you know, uh, not Paul. He just, he, he's just hitting it hard every chance he gets. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's an interesting study to go through the, neck, the, uh, the letters, the epistles, and see how many times they say Jesus, Christ Jesus, Jesus the Lord. Uh, they're just very much in, into making that very clear. Anyway, uh, the, the end result is um, you've insulted the wrong God, O Sennacherib. Verse 23, whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes? on high against the Holy One of Israel. And so um, you've crossed the line. Psalm 2, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Yahweh shall hold them in derision. I know when you're going through stuff, you want God to say, Okay, is today, today the day that you're going to wipe out the Assyrians? 
how much more do I have to go through? Uh, well, we, we learn. We, we learn to just serve the Lord and no matter what's happening. Verse 24, but your servants, your servants, by your servants, you have reproached the Lord and said, by the multitude of my chariots, I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. <clears throat> I will enter its father's height to its fruitful forest. Verse 25, I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up the brooks of defense. So, um, this is the Sennacherib. God is saying, this is what's in his heart. This is, how he, this is what he's thinking. He's wrong. He uses the pronouns I and my seven times in this section, this soliloquy, if you will. Uh, reminds us of chapter 14 in Isaiah where Satan is, uh, you know, uh, uh, I will lift up my throne. And, and he talks about himself so much. Or the parable of the lost self-made man in Luke chapter 12. My silos, my grain, and, and uh, you know, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And so it's just being shown here that the wicked, they are self-impressed. They think they're self-made, and they're not. Everything Assyria had was because they were an instrument of God. Verse 26, instrument of judgment. Did you not hear how long ago, how long ago, how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. So now this is God responding. The prophet has laying this out for his audience after these events, of course. And um, he's, he's saying that God is the one and he's the sovereign one. Verse 27, Therefore the inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops, and grain blighted before it is grown, verse 28. But I know your dwelling place, you're going out, you're coming in, and your rage against me. Well, uh, so the doctrine is right. Again, we're getting doctrine, the proper teachings about God from God. In verse 27, when he mentions the housetops uh, with the grass on top, well, those are flat roofs. They use mud, you know, to kind of hold a everything together. They, they leaked when it did rain. But, of course, that would allow things to grow up there. And so in, in, in its season, there would be green, you know, the roofs would be green. Sometimes if, if you don't get the power washer out, your houses will be green. So uh, we, we understand things will, will, will grow. That, well, anyway, in case you're wondering, how is roof, the roof growing grass, the flat roofs? Allow, and then dust would blow dust on the roofs and giving it giving vegetation a chance to take root. Anyway, he, in verse 27, uh, the Lord says, um, I know where you live and uh, I know what you're doing and we want to tell that to, you know, the evolutionist for instance, who chases insulting theories, if believe anything but God and, and uh, we want to tell them that God, God knows what you're up to. He knows you're being intellectually dishonest. It's just such an easy thing to shoot down, you know, the first animal evolved with the second one. I mean, it's just, uh, uh, 
anyway, we won't, it's too easy. Verse 29, because you, your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Well, the Assyrians were notorious for uh, putting hooks in the nose of prisoners. Uh, God is, I don't believe this is literal, because when the army is wiped out, the 185,000, it's not the entire army that's wiped out, but it's how big was the army? If you killed that many, you still had a, a big army left. Uh, which is incidentally an indication of how they stripped the land to feed those troops and how much suffering that caused the Jews. God's going to bring that up in a moment. Uh, But he's going to go the way he came, and he's going to go against his will. And that's what Isaiah verse 29 is saying. This hasn't happened yet chronologically, and Isaiah is laying out the details, and it all happened, just just like he said, verse 30. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and the second year what springs from the same. Also the third year sow and reap. In the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat the fruit of them. So for two years the people will live off the land. This will be miraculous. They have to produce enough just naturally after the Assyrians had come in and stripped the land. Uh, So they were worried, are we going to die of starvation if we survive the Assyrian army? And the prophet is very sensitive to this. God, of course, is sensitive to this and tells the prophet, don't worry, you're going to eat, you're going to live off the land, you're going to rebuild your cities, you're going to get your your act back together. Uh, All the Jews that are here on earth today, populating the world, actually coming mainly coming out of this, these survivors that were in the city. Um, anyway, not exclusively, but largely. The, verse, the 31st verse now, And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward, bear fruit upward. Verse 32, For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. And there uh, is my statement about the Jewish nation just multiplying. Uh, largely because of these these survivors. Had, had there not been this central remnant of survivors, the others would have been assimilated like the northern kingdom. And more than likely, and that, that would have been the end of the Jewish people, which was not going to happen. Satan has really tried to, to depopulate the, the Jewish people to the point where they are no longer a distinct people, and it just has failed, and it will never succeed. Anyway... Um, that when he says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, the meaning of that is this is something God wants to do. He's looking forward to do the, doing this. That's the, 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 the zeal. You know, if you if hire somebody to do work and they're just, you know, dragging, you're pushing them up the hill, maybe you're a foreman and you've got people that are just, man, they just, you'd rather double the work than have them help. Or you've got somebody that's zealous, that we could do, let's take this thing, let's get this thing bumped out. I, I don't like it any more than you do, but we can do this. I've had the pleasure of working with men like that. And uh, I tell you, the other ones that weren't like that, you just look to get rid of them. Fortunately, I had wise foremen that could perceive it and say, we got an ace over here, and of course we got this uh, dead weight over here. We can't keep those two together. 
the, the, the ace will no longer, you know, so they get rid of that guy and they bring you somebody that, that has that zeal. And it was, yeah, we know the job is hard, uh, but that's the job. And if you're a Christian in the workplace, you're not supposed to let people out-zeal you. <laughs> if I can say it that way. I mean, you're supposed to be, it's, it's a witness. The world is watching. And if your testimony is, yeah, that one's the Christian, the lazy one. The one that's always trying to get out of the work. The one that's always complaining. The one that's always got a gripe. Um, that's not a good witness. Verse 33. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mount against it. Fulfilled. Verse 34. By the way that he came, by the, the same shall he return, and he shall not come into this city, says Yahweh. Fulfilled. Verse 35. For I will defend the city to save it from my own, for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. When that's, of course, the promises of God will not be defeated by anyone. And this is fulfilled. What would you do if you were listening to this? If the Assyrian army, you, they'd already wiped out all these villages of your, your, in your land and they're at the gates. They're telling you what they're going to do. We're going to gouge your eyes out. We're going to, you know. what would, would you believe the prophet? Um... You know, here he, he makes a promise. You know, the, the king, Sennacherib's going to die. But it doesn't happen for 20 years. So would you be in one of those that says, he, he got that one wrong. And then 20, after 20 years, when you read in the newspaper, Sennacherib killed by his own sons in the house of, of Naosh, whatever his god was. Then, then you say, boy, I should have believed. Skip the step of doubt if you can. Uh, it will it will try to get you anyway, but you don't have to fall through it. Jeremiah, when he read these words, what sorrow must have filled his heart, knowing that God's zeal wanted to deliver Jerusalem and did in Jeremiah's day, but it wasn't going to happen for him. For Jeremiah, the as zealous as God was for the city, there was nothing he could do, because the remnant was not strong enough, not their fault. But the evil had just become so big uh, that uh, it, 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 God let it run its course. And he, he, he did what he always does with a, a majority evil. He causes all things to work together for the good. And out of that came not, came not only Jeremiah, but Ezekiel and Daniel. Just think of the prophecies that are in those two books alone concerning end times, never mind the ones fulfilled in their time. When Daniel lays out, you know, the history of the Assyrians, the, the Persians, the, the Greeks, the Romans, historians look at that and say, ah, oh, you know, he must have wrote that afterwards, and it's proven that, that he did not. He wrote it when he, when, before it even, ever happened. Amazing to trust uh, God's word. That's why we put such an emphasis the thing I've liked about Calvary Chapel from Chuck Smith is that the emphasis has always been on the teaching of God's Word without excluding everything else. But this is not well received in many circles. Um, in many circles, it's, it's, it's resisted very much. Verse 36, Then the angel of Yahweh went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning... There were the corpses all dead, and they said, huh. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the first thing that, how did the people know 
They probably saw the, the vultures. They probably heard the scavengers. Um, you know, maybe they did just wake up and pull up the blinds and just see the pile of dead bodies. But I think it, I, you know, as hilly as that area is, it, it probably was, man, look at all those buzzards up there. What's going on? Uh, anyway, uh, the, the insult was directed personally to Yahweh. And um, it's dealt with personally by Yahweh in that he sent the angel, which, which is pre-incarnate Christ. I believe this is a Christophany, that this is the Lord that just, he just killed him. It says here in verse 36, and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. Uh, and you know, that's too many to just bag up and take back to Assyria and give a proper burial. This created a lot of work. No mention of Big Mouth Rabshakeh surviving. Maybe he perished in this also. Um, anyway, at the bottom is of the verse of verse 36, and when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. Not the first time this happened to an army against the Jews. Exodus 4, 14, when Pharaoh's army chased the Jews. So Yahweh saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What's some morbid scenes? <laughs> I mean, it's not, not just in the Old Testament. Uh, how gruesome is the crucifixion? Verse 37. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. And Isaiah in chapter 31 already told us that he's, he's looking to get away. He's not just sashaying, well, let's just go, go home. That didn't work out. No, he, he's, pretty, he's pretty nervous. Verse 38, now it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, that his sons, Adramalek and Sharizer, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, in modern Turkey, and, well, actually, Turkey, Armenia, and Iran are, are all connected to that mountain range in Ararat. So, uh, where are we? Uh, and Estrahadon, the sun, reigned in his place. And he'll conquer a lot of places too, but not the Jews. So, there's a 20-year gap between verses 37 and 38. Sennacherib lived for those 20 years and continued his military exploits in other places, but never did he come back to, the, to Judah. Those roads were closed for him by God. And, uh, uh, and, and that's pretty much it. I'm always amazed by how confident the prophets were. And maybe when you've, you've had a chance to exercise such faith in your own life, when everybody else is doubting you, but you know what God has told you, and then it comes to pass. It is, it is uh, truly good. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, may we learn our lessons in spite of all the information that is recorded, the many words of the prophets um, are rich with instruction, but may we come away with understanding that um, this life has many battlefields for faith to fight on and to win by trusting in you, by having our doctrine correct, and by having that resolve that is determined not to depart from you. May you get us all home safely tonight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.